from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is the best of Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Kathy Kelly on U.S. caused starvation in Afghanistan. Also, we'll speak to 48 Hills editor Tim Redman about the recent controversial recall of three members of the San Francisco School Board and the Winnemucca Indian Colony files to join a lawsuit against the Thacker Pass lithium mine. All that's coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. Uh, turn our attention back to what's going on in Afghanistan. We have essentially we have another uh, policy, Kathy Kelly, that that is apparently knowingly meant to starve and brutalize an entire population. You have a lot of friends. You've been working on the ground in Afghanistan for a long time, and you're more than a little concerned. You want to give us a start off with a bit of an overview of uh, what you've been thinking about and what you've been up to? Well, thank you, Dennis. You know, Afghanistan was already the poorest country in Asia. It was a country where um, there were high, high rates of uh, hunger and malnutrition. And so many people had been displaced. There were already four million people displaced um, before the uh, final push of the Taliban, and then another million people were displaced. And so, you know, in, in visits to Afghanistan in the past, I mean, I was mostly in a working-class neighborhood of Kabul, and, and people didn't have central heating, they didn't have clean tap water, um, lived on very sparse diets. I didn't know anybody who owned a car. Uh, people lived very, very simple lives, but they were getting by. Now, the Biden administration, since the Taliban came into power, has immediately after the Taliban came into power, they froze all of the funds, which belonged to Afghan people, that were in a reserve bank maintained by the United States. And the United States has done this with a number of developing countries. They basically said, you know, put your money in our bank and we'll hold it. We'll, we'll make it safe for, for you. Well, that just even adds more irony to the fact that basically, in the eyes of many analysts and NGOs and other countries paying close attention, the United States has stolen that money. There's $7 billion of Afghan funds in the Federal Reserve in New York Bank. And President Biden has now said, okay, I'm going to release those funds but what he's doing in the release is putting half of the funds, $3.5 billion, into uh, an account, like an escrow account, that's available to people who are suing the Taliban for damages because of their family members having been killed on 9-11. And then the other half will be eventually parceled out by the United States in humanitarian relief. But, you know, the, the Afghan economy is on the verge of collapse. There are uh, estimates that one million children could die of starvation over this harsh winter. 
the, the possibility of famine is being predicted. And people need that economy to kind of get jump-started, jump to, to get going again. And a humanitarian relief will not do that. And also, that humanitarian relief is going to be tied up for months because the executive order that President Biden made on February 11th says that nothing goes anywhere until these court cases get resolved. Well, you know, courts can move pretty slowly, so that could be months during a time when there's such a critical, critical need for people to have food and have fuel. Kathy, you say one million children. I, I, I have trouble imagining one child, the, the level of suffering that goes along with dying of hunger and thirst. One million children reminds one of the kind of policy that led to the death of tens of thousands of children in Iraq. I mean, I'm, you know, the parallels are terrifying. Uh, we've seen that, that video called Collateral Murder in Iraq. And then fast forward, the United States on its way out of Afghanistan, another one of these sort of collateral murder this time it was a cologne a clone uh, operation you want to talk about the the, the gravity uh, of um uh, 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 i don't even know how to say how, how do you give up a million children based on a, a policy to punish a people because you had to leave in a hurry because your occupation was a little bit more than misguided well, you know, I suppose most people, if they looked back on primitive societies that practiced child sacrifice, would, you know, be puzzled. Like, how could people ever sacrifice the children uh, for in order to please the, some entity, maybe to please a god? And, and child sacrifice, I think, has always seemed kind of horrific. But you're right, Dennis, when I look at what happened in Iraq, and the fact that hundreds of thousands of children, just counting the little ones under age five, became sickened through starvation. And then because of that starvation, they were more vulnerable to other causes of death and, you know, combinations of a, a respiratory infection or gastroenteritis and starvation. Their hearts would give out. They died by first by the thousands, then the tens of thousands. And UN estimates were saying it could have been as many as a half million children in Iraq who died. And, uh, you know, was this because they weren't able to control their government, so they had to be punished? Of course, that sounds utterly absurd. And I remember sitting over a, a breakfast on a chilly morning, you know, we'd, 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 we'd wear blankets to breakfast. And um, I, over time, you know, our young friends would be curious, well, why did so many of you go over to Iraq? You know, you Westerners who come to visit us, why did you keep going to Iraq? And so we told them about the economic sanctions. And I just have a clear, clear image of these young teens, you know, shaking their heads and looking, you know, kind of both puzzled and frustrated and saying, well, well why would your government want to punish children? Well, those same Young teens are now, some of them, young parents of little babies. And you can bet they're asking that same question. Why punish these little ones? Why punish us? You know, they weren't even born uh, on 9-11, 2001. 
and, and and the idea that somehow Afghanistan wasn't punished as a result of 9-11. You know, the, the country suffered through invasion and bombing and night raids and torture at places like Bagram Air Base and people being sent off to Guantanamo. They suffered ravages through all the 20 years of U.S. occupation and militarism that just fed levels of corruption. Um, you, you could... You could trace with every one of the 400 military bases uh, in Afghanistan that the United States and other countries were operating, that different gangs would sort of affiliate themselves with the bases and figure out ways to get money from the base and then use um, the, the kind of corruption to, uh, you know, kind of get rid of rivals it, 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 and then stole a lot of money out of the country. So, so Afghanistan suffered. A great deal. And they lost many people. But no one could ever imagine that, you know, Afghans would say, well, we're going to sue the United States and, uh, you know, try to get some kind of recompense for our suffering. Because they're Afghan. They're not Americans. And Americans, I think, often have the idea that, that we, we count more than other people. And so this action of freezing the assets of, of the country and saying that it, it it, it, all, it all has to serve U.S. national interests. It's really a pernicious and a cruel thing. And I would imagine other countries are taking note and, and may not feel so trustful of the United States. That's the voice of Kathy Kelly. She's a longtime peace activist, uh, made over 30 trips to Afghanistan. Uh, she's now the co-coordinator of bandkillerjones.org. She's been very active on that. And, Kathy, it's, it's just um, extremely troubling to see how uh, the, the Democrats uh, just uh, got out of one 20-year occupation and they couldn't wait. The, uh, the guns of war, the two-gun society is geared up, is salivating for another war. Your concerns in the context of what we're already talking about. Well, you know, you're, you're right. There's been no pause to ask questions. You know, what, what went wrong in this 20 years of futile uh, U.S. occupation and, and warfare against Afghanistan that turned the country into a shambles? There's been no readiness to ask about the trillions of dollars that was spent on that war and about all of the lives lost. Instead... You know, they not only are racing off to new wars, there's a, a, a quick insistence, well, now we're going to need even more sophisticated weaponry. Uh, it's, it's not enough to have the uh, technology for drone attacks and for uh, the kinds of aerial attacks that were practiced in Afghanistan. They, they're, they're practicing now for the kinds of attacks that would, uh, in fact, with war games with China not apparently be su sufficient or successful in beating China, in winning. And they lose the war games. And so now the admirals and the generals are saying, well, we have to have more sophisticated weaponry. And actually, in the event of a military engagement with China, Recourse, recourse to nuclear weapons would become a probability, not a possibility. Now imagine that. Not only do we 
not stop and pause at the end of one war, but they're racing so fast into another war that they want a new generation of weapons and are actually contemplating crossing the nuclear threshold. So this, of course, is a, is a great, great danger. And democracy is based on education. How educated is the U.S. public about these kinds of realities and about the dangers that we're facing? That's a good question. Uh, we're speaking with Kathy Kelly. Um, we're talking about, well, the end of one 20-year occupation uh, and the what could be a very... A troubling beginning to a nuclear war you've got again you've got um really the press is uh right behind this one and the they are i i would put them to the right of biden who is really salivating to be once again a the leader of nato uh and to make a statement kathy do you remember uh back in the day when Clinton came to power, he did what many presidents are forced to do. They have to come in and do a quick military action to sow their oats, to demonstrate that they are truly American. And you remember Clinton, what Clinton did, and I remember very precisely because he did it while Hillary Clinton was in China celebrating the Year of the Woman. He bombed. Iraq on a on information about a phony plot uh, that the CIA that the CIA uncovered that George Herbert Walker Bush was going to be assassinated when he went to visit Kuwait and celebrate I guess gold toilet seats and the victory uh, over Kuwait uh, and um, so. Clinton felt the necessity to bomb, and among the people that he murdered, over 200, was a woman by the name of Leila al-Attar, who was the head of the Iraqi National Museum and a key supporter of women artists in the Middle East, a liberating, empowering women artists. And Hillary was giving a speech about women, and... Bill was killing this artist. And by the way, this uh, Alila's daughter, Rima, was blinded in one eye. And when Bill Clinton used to visit Chelsea at Stanford, he'd fly over where Rima was after she had received medical care for having her eye knocked out. I'm worried. This is the George, this is the, uh, the, the Joe Biden version of Time to Sow Some Oats. Are you concerned? Well, sure. It's, I mean, it's terrible that there is such a push for um, being willing to use the military violence that the United States has certainly predicated its foreign policy on again and again. And, uh, you know, Biden, I suppose, feels like he has to make up for the debacle, which was the um, ending of the United States troop presence in Afghanistan. And, you know, I, I, I feel like it's important not to look away from the family of Zamarai Ahmadi, the survivors whose 10 family members were killed on August 29th. You know, Joe Biden said, we will hunt you down. We will have no mercy after 13 Marines were killed at the Hamid Karzai International Airport and 170 Afghans uh, during the evacuation and the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, and that was on August 26th. So, 
you know, they used their drone technology to follow a person who was driving a white Toyota Corolla, and they felt that that was in itself an indicator because there were ISIS people who had similar cars. Well, you know, there are white Toyota Corollas, you know, quite frequently on the streets. Yeah. And, and everything that Zamarai Ahmadi did on the last day of his life was used as kind of confirmation bias for the uh, drone analyst to say, oh, see, look what he's doing now. This is just more proof. He's gingerly placing some kind of containers in the back seat of the car. Yeah. Those are were explosives. Well, they were water canisters. He was bringing water home to his family. Uh, he was a water carrier, yeah. And, um, you know, to the very last minute, this wasn't the fog of war. They followed carefully the car in every act that he made, and yet they came up with a completely horridly wrong conclusion, and then tried to, to cover it up. You know, what was unusual about that drone attack was that there were international people on the ground to cover it. Otherwise, those kinds of attacks that killed civilians, wiped out entire families, were routine. And, and Daniel Hale is in prison for having let the world know that 90%, 95% of the time, they had the wrong person in these attacks. But at no point do you see the military saying, okay, we're going to try to absorb this. You don't see the political classes saying, we're going to look for the blend of humility and courage that would allow us to really ask questions about what we've been doing. Instead, the initial response was this was a righteous attack. And when they finally did complete their own review of themselves, they said there was no wrongdoing done. Nothing was done wrong. So this is the kind of hubris. This is the kind of very dangerous and reckless self-assurance that the military and the military contractors and the political classes indulge in. And, uh, you know, I think we just have a responsibility to keep trying to dismantle it, to keep trying to tell the truth. And every now and then, it seems like, you know, there are um, very credible and earnest reporters who are trying to do that. You know, Asmat Khan, with the civilian casualties file, told a lot of truth in the um, extensive reporting she did over the course of five years. She sued the Department of Defense to try to get materials. She filed numerous um, uh, Freedom of Information Act items. She, she hired translators, moved into neighborhoods, and got information about five years during which attacks were made that killed civilians. But we're talking about 20 years of the United States waging aerial attacks and other attacks in Afghanistan. And all the Congress would have to do is just say, hand over the material. You know, they don't have to file Freedom of Information Acts. They could just say, we want the footage from the drone cameras. We want the evidence. We want to know how many people were killed, the names, the dates of when they were killed. Were any reparations paid? That's what should be happening. But instead, there's this kind of... Um, pass, green light given to these reckless militarists that just says go ahead, get ready for the next war, we'll give you more money, Joe Biden's talking about raising 
the defense expenditures up to $770 billion, and then they'll probably ask for more and get it because we have a spineless Congress whenever it comes to issues of militarism and killing people. And while they want to kill through an economic war as though they hadn't done enough already to leave the country of Afghanistan in a shambles. It's unbelievable. It's shocking. And when the children start to die, as we know, they will, because the situation is uh, indescribably terrible from all accounts. Um, you know, oh, Kathy, thank you uh, for taking the time to be with us. We've been speaking with Kathy Kelly. She works with a group called BanKillerDrones.org. Uh, that point you made about Daniel Hale. Um, he's in jail because, among other things, he pointed out, as you say, that what 90, 95 percent of drone strikes miss their target and they kill a lot of innocents. As you point out, they killed somebody carrying water bottles, carrying water bottles, and then they covered up. It was according to military structures. It was acceptable. It was acceptable murder. It was, you know, it just brings us back to collateral murder, the same old policy, the same old deadly policy. Kathy, please be safe. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 live in the San Francisco Bay Area over KPFA Pacifica Radio and live in Los Angeles on KPFK. And we are happy uh, to have you along. And we're also glad to be joined by Tim Redman. Uh, he is the editor founder of 48 Hills, has been a political and investigative reporter in San Francisco for more than 30 years. Uh, and he spent much of that time as the executive editor of the Bay Guardian, Tim Redman. Welcome back to Flashpoints. Good to have you with us. Uh, Dennis, let's I'm talk about this. Always great to have you. Let's talk about this, uh, this recall. Uh, three members of the San Francisco School Board. Um, uh, would you set this up for us? Uh, a lot of big money behind it. Too, and I, I think the mayor uh, is salivating about having the uh, the prospect of appointing her own folks. Yeah, so this originally started off 
as kind of a grassroots effort of parents who were mad at the school board for several reasons, right? One is because they weren't getting the public schools open during the COVID pandemic when private schools were open. Right now, of course, the private schools had the money for better ventilation, air purifiers, all kinds of stuff like that that the public schools didn't have. Nevertheless, parents were mad that the public schools weren't open, right? Then a group of parents got very, very mad that this school board changed the admissions policy for Lowell High School, which is the elite high school in town that used to be a test-in school. And the test-in school um, had fairly significant population of Asian and white kids and very few black kids and a very small number of Latinos. And the district that the school board decided to change that to a lottery system so everyone has a chance at Lowell, which has increased the representation of black and Latino students but has angered a lot of white and Asian parents, right? So those two factors. And then in the middle of the pandemic, while all of this is going on, the school board decides to come up with plans to rename about 40 schools. And this would have cost millions of dollars during a pandemic. And I am totally down with the renaming the schools, Dennis. My kids went to McKinley Elementary. And they're walking around with T-shirts that say McKinley on them. You and I both know William McKinley. He's a terrible president. (laughs) My God, the father of American (laughs) imperialism. Right? Why are we celebrating this guy? But the timing was probably bad, politically. So all of it starts over. Let's get rid of the school board. Now, that started off as some angry parents gathering signatures. It quickly became a different thing. And it quickly became a different thing when the billionaires got involved. And the billionaires, for example, Arthur Rock gave almost $400,000 to recall the San Francisco school board. Right? Arthur Rock has no children. I'm not sure he even actually lives in San Francisco right now, and he's 95 years old. I don't think Arthur Rock cares whether we rename McKinley Elementary. And I don't think Arthur Rock cares one way or the other how people are admitted to Lowell High School. This has it's um, he certainly doesn't care whether the schools are open during the pandemic because he doesn't have any kids. Right. It's it's, it has nothing to do with that. All right. Um, He gave that money. David Sachs, who once wrote a book with Peter Thiel about what's wrong with diversity in schools, that we shouldn't have diversity in schools, gave seventy five thousand dollars. The California Association of Realtors gave ninety thousand dollars. Why do all these people care about how admissions happen at an elite high school in San Francisco or what the school names are. They don't, right? What this became, in part, was a national effort to push the charter school movement, right? And I'm not Uh saying that the parents who started this didn't have legitimate gripes. I don't agree with all of them. I I, I think it's kind of silly that we did a recall when all of these candidates would be on the regular ballot in November anyway, and you could vote for... So a different candidate, the voters could choose a different candidate. Now what's going to happen is, of course, the mayor will choose the candidates. We'll come back to that. But Arthur Rock, if you look him up, Arthur Rock is someone who is an ally of Betsy DeVos and supports charter schools and vouchers. And he has put money into campaigns around the country, including in Oakland, where he put a ton of money into an Oakland school board race. He clearly doesn't live in Oakland. He clearly doesn't have any kids in the Oakland schools. Why is he doing this? Because he was promoting candidates who liked charter schools. And like the idea of vouchers. So that on a national level became why all of this money came pouring in and why, you know, a million dollars came into a recall campaign for the San Francisco school district, which is just kind of crazy money. 
So that's what, and on the national level, of course, that's what people are going to be talking about. Um, that I mean, some people will be talking about that. That this is a this, there's a lot more to this than, than meets the eye. I, the second thing that's happening here is, of course, the mayor of San Francisco and not the voters will choose three members of the school board. And um, you know, if we if, if if we'd waited until November, honestly, Dennis, I think it's safe to say none of these three candidates would have been reelected in November. People are angry across the board. I understand none of them would be reelected, but the, the voters would have chosen three new candidates. Instead, the mayor's going to choose those candidates. And that matters in part because nationally, we've seen mayors, New York, Chicago, I believe, try to take over the school system and try to take control of the school system. This has not worked well, right. particularly, you know, particularly for um, students in low performing and low income areas. All right, this has not worked well. Um, I'm not saying London Breed is trying to do that, but she will have the ability to appoint three new school board members. Now, if you look at the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and you look at them historically, a significant number of supervisors have started off their career on the school board. So it also will give a boost to three people who will be loyal to the mayor. And um, as I say, you know, this was all of these folks would have been on the ballot in November anyway. So this, as I say there's a lot more to this than just the frustration, which I understand completely from parents over the schools not getting reopened. And which I, I, you know, I understand that the school renaming, which I support, was done at a bad time and they should have focused on other things. All of that is, is legit, but there, it became something else. I, I thought, uh, in part, also it it was sort of a moment where the uh, the national anti woke movement uh, could jump in because obviously the renaming of schools they they like McKinley, so they don't want to get rid of that. These does this come into it as well? Because this has been uh, well, this has been part of that uh, divisive battle. Well, that was certainly the Fox News narrative. That was, and you know, Fox News has is obsessed with San Francisco right now, as you probably know, Dennis. They're obsessed with crime and getting rid of the district attorney, even when they're running stories that are completely inaccurate. They were, I mean, the New York Times did a big story on the San Francisco school board recall, right? Why does the New York Times care that much about what's going on in one school district with three school board members? It's because it's right. become a national I was story. wondering and, about that. Yeah, part of it is the whole anti-wokeness. Oh, my God, why are we changing the name of George Washington High School when he was the father of our country while well, he was also a slaveholder, right? Um, why are we changing the name of Abraham Lincoln High School when he was the great emancipator? Well, if you look at his record on Native American issues, it wasn't so good. I think these are good discussions to have. These are fair discussions to have. We ought to have these discussions. I don't think that's wokeness run amok. I think it's honestly having high school students understand history and understand what their schools are named after. I'm not sure it was a good thing to do in the midst of a pandemic that was keeping the schools closed when people were frustrated about other things. Right. So, but yes, that is part of the national narrative on this is, Oh my God, the San Francisco school board is crazy. They're renaming a school named after George Washington. How could you possibly do that? Yeah. Speaking with Tim Redman, uh, we're talking about the recall of uh, yesterday's successful recall of three members of the San Francisco School Board. And uh, I, I want to ask you, Tim, if we could just switch for a moment. Uh, you sure. mentioned you alluded to the recall of Chase Abedin, Uh And obviously we know Fox News is all, all over that. Where does that stand now? What is that looking like? Well, the election will be in June. It'll be the first week in June at the same time as the general primary election, 
Right, so voter turnout will be higher. Voter turnout in this election, and I was just looking at the maps, uh, voter turnout was very low. It's about 26% now. And the you, you can see an awful lot of voter turnout in more conservative areas of town where people just came to the ballot to vote to get rid of the school board. There was also a race for state assembly, a special election for state assembly on the ballot on the east side of town, which is essentially right now a dead heat between Supervisor Matt Haney and former Supervisor David Campos. Um, that's a very they're, with a, they're a percentage point apart. But a lot of people came out to vote when there were no candidates on the ballot. There was nothing else on the ballot they cared about, but they came out to vote to overturn to get rid of the school board, and that was. You know, by a, a margin of like 70%. So I don't know because it will be a very different electorate in June. All right. Um, Chesa Boudin um, faces, interestingly, a lot of the same money. A lot of the money that's funding the anti Chesa Boudin campaign is linked to the money that was funding the recall the school board campaign. There's some organizations that are, have been involved in both and money and San Francisco politics flows through all kinds of different groups, but some of the same money is involved. And also there's a lot of national Republican money coming into the Chesapeake Boudin recall. Cause it's, again, it's a national contest. Do we want to get rid of the San Francisco district attorney who is trying to reform the carceral state? So um, it's a few months away. It's too early to tell exactly what's going to go on. Um, the, as you know, the uh, San Francisco police chief pulled out of a um, memorandum of understanding that would have um, allowed the district attorney's office to investigate police shootings, um, in part to try to embarrass Chesa Boudin. But he isn't getting a lot of traction on that. A lot of people are kind of siding with Chesa Boudin on this. So I don't know. Um, it, it depends on what the electorate is, but that is still very much a national issue. And Chesa Boudin, he is... Uh considered a model in terms of progressives all over the country of what could happen, how you really could flip uh, a progressive can work in law enforcement as a district attorney. And obviously, if you if you change that relationship, you're going a long way in terms of the uh, undermining the underlying racism that often uh clouds and undermines the the real fair justice system and uh, makes it impossible for black people to get a fair deal these days. Yes, and there's another side to this, right? Um, Chesa Boudin promised when he was running, and the thing about the recall that, you know, some of us find a bit odd is like, why do a recall? The guy's doing exactly what he said he was going to do, right? He ran on a platform. He has fulfilled his campaign promises. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. If you don't like him, run someone else on a different platform in two and a half years, right? But it's easier to get people worked up about a recall, as we saw with the school board, than to get worked up finding a better candidate, right? So the other side to this, though, is Chester Boudin promised when he was running that he would also hold police officers accountable for criminal behavior. For the first time in the history of San Francisco, as far as I can tell, although there may be stuff that happened in the 1870s that I don't know about, as far as I know, for the first time in the history of San Francisco, the district attorney has indicted an on-duty police officer for uh, unlawful violence, and that trial is going on right now. Then there's another police officer who's going to be charged with unlawful shooting, killing somebody, and that's going to happen sometime in the spring. So Boudin has actually... Hey, done what he promised to do, which is hold police officers accountable under the law, which has never happened before. But you can imagine how the Police Officers Association feels about that. 
Uh, and what are they doing about it? Well, I believe that the, peace, the Police Officers Association was behind the chief's move to uh, back off on the memorandum of understanding that allows the DA's office to investigate police shootings. Now, let's remember, you've covered some of these. Um, there's been a lot of San Francisco police shootings in the last five years in San Francisco where the former DA, George Gascon, I don't know if he would have prosecuted the officers anyway, but he said there's not enough evidence to take to trial. Why? Because the cops collected the evidence, right? And the police investigated their own shootings. And what do you know? There's never enough evidence to go to trial. So, again, in a national, in a move that has national implications, the DA's office said, we want to take the, the, the point on investigations into police shootings. And rather than cops being out on the streets interviewing witnesses and doing this work, it's going to be the DA investigators. This is what has led to indictments of cops. It's also been very effective since that went into a place. We've had like one police shooting where we were having several a year before that. So this is what, again, the police officers association and the folks on the national level who are trying to say, you know, Chesa Boudin's responsible for crimes in San Francisco. Chesa Boudin can't prosecute people if the police don't make arrests. And as we've also seen in the Chronicle, police officers have not been making a lot of arrests recently. They've, in fact, they've just let crimes go on, you know, just let, let things happen. And they've, they sat outside a cannabis dispensary while it was being robbed of cash and did nothing and did nothing. They didn't even make an arrest while it was clear what was going on. So, you know, they, they, people complain about curb break-ins. The police make arrests in like 5% of car break-ins. The district attorney can't do anything about that. But he's being blamed for it. And this is part of this national um, effort. And again, the recall thing is important. Republicans will never get elected governor of California these days in a normal election. So what did they try to do? They tried to do a recall election, to recall Gavin Newsom and replace him with a Republican in a lower turnout election. Remember who the last Republican governor of California was? That was Arnold Schwarzenegger. He got his job through a recall election. They're looking at using the recall and low turnout anti-democratic elections to try to do what they can't do in a free and fair election when there's different candidates going up against each other. When it's, hey, do you want to vote for Chesa Boudin or do you want to vote for a different candidate who has a different platform? Wow. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacific Radio. One uh, final item I want to ask you about, and that's uh, we're seeing, it uh, looks like, Chop Chop uh, for City College of San Francisco, which I think is a, an extraordinary institution that needs to continue. Uh, but the Chop Chop is getting louder. Uh, are, are they going to yeah. shred it again? Well, there's two things going on here, Dennis, in the few minutes we have left. One is that the state of California has been moving toward away from supporting community colleges that are real community colleges that provide a lot of non-credit classes that people need, for example, to learn the English language, to improve their jobs, to improve their lives. The state of California only wants to give you money for classes that will get someone a AA degree that they can transfer to Cal or state. Right? That's the direction the state is going in. Right? And a lot of what City College has done is, for example, English as a second language classes that don't get you an AA degree. They don't get you a certificate, but they do make it possible for you to get a job and possibly become a United States citizen. Right? And so they want to get rid of the, the, the state of California is pressuring City College to give up that type of classes. And that is a larger policy decision that's been made at the level of the governor, the state legislature and the state community college board. Right? So that's and that has cost us both in terms of enrollment and state funding. And state funding is based on enrollment, but they only want to pay for certain types of classes, right? The second thing that's happened, of course, is we just came through a global pandemic when 
when, when City College was unable to hold classes in person and lost a lot of students. The reality is, in my opinion, this is an institution that is too important to the city of San Francisco to let it fall apart, to let it be chopped to bits. The state policy needs to change, but also at some point, the voters of San Francisco are just going to have to say, if the state won't fund this, we've got to come up with a way to put 35 to $50 million a year in local funds into City College because we appreciate its role as a community institution. So, um, you know, it's it's just we're, we're facing a real crisis here now. And, and as I say, I would love to see the state change their position on this, but I think it's going to actually come down to whether the voters in San Francisco want to support City College. That's Tim Redmond, my favorite journalist. He is the founder of 48 Hills, the former editor of the Bay Guardian. Tim, you're the only person I know. You're one of the best at doing a 40-minute interview in 20 minutes. Thank you for joining <laughs> us on Flashpoints. Take Absolutely. care. I'm happy to be on your show anytime, Dennis. Thanks. Right now, um, we're joined by Max Wilbert. Uh, Max Wilbert is uh, an activist, organizer, writer, wilderness guide. He has been part of a grassroots political uh, a political work for nearly 20 years. He is the co-author of Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. And he's the co-founder of Protect Thacker Pass. We're going to tell you all about that. Uh, also joining us and deeply engaged at Thacker Pass and uh, uh, resisting this uh, lithium plant is Will Falk. He's an attorney, writer, um, and he is now uh, representing um, the uh, Reno sparks indian colony they've joined uh, a lawsuit i guess you could say already in progress trying to restrain uh the digging of this mine on indigenous land uh sacred land uh you've heard about this kind of battle before you know we took the team to standing rock um we're watching this one very closely this is in, I think it's in California, right at near the Nevada border. Um, welcome, Max Wilbert. Welcome, Will Falk. It's good to have you with us. Great to be oh, here. Really glad to be with you. Well, let me start with you, Max. It's it, We're glad to have you. Um, give us a, an overview of, uh, explain exactly where this is happening. Uh, just give us an overview of how this battle has unfolded. Right now it's in the courts, but uh, set, the, set the scene, please. Sure. So uh, this is a giant pro- proposed lithium mine. It's actually in the state of Nevada, it's right up near the border with Oregon. Uh, so uh, to, to make the location understandable to folks, if you've ever driven over the Sierras and through Reno and headed east as if you were going to Salt Lake City, uh, a couple hours east of Reno, if you headed north towards the Oregon border on Highway 95, you'd be getting close to the Thacker Pass area. And what's proposed there is a, a massive strip mine. It's essentially uh, 28 square miles of land that are under threat for this mine project that could last for, uh, you know, almost 50 years, potentially 100 years if they expand it as as the company plans on. And this mine would cause a lot of harm to uh, the wildlife in the area. There are a lot of sensitive species in the region, including the, the greater sage grouse that uh, that iconic bird of the sagebrush habitat. 
And it's also a very significant area for native people in the region uh, due, uh, you know, not least to a massacre that took place in uh, 1865 when the U.S. cavalry killed uh, between 31 and 70 uh, Paiute men, women, and children uh, in Thacker Pass. All right. And so how, how did this bubble up in, in the recent past? How did this uh, get to where it is now? There there have been a number of battles. There are a number of tribes engaged. Uh, just say a little bit more about um, who's involved, who the players are. Sure. Well, I became aware of this mine a couple of years ago when I was researching uh, for my book and writing about the problems with lithium. Uh, you know, we're being sold this narrative that electric cars are going to help save the planet. But if you actually look at the science, uh, electric cars don't have that big of a, a greenhouse gas benefit. I, you know, I think global warming is a huge problem. We can't keep going with this uh, fossil fuel car culture that we have. But simply, if you look at the data, electric cars aren't a great solution to that problem. Uh, so I learned about Thacker Pass and started to get involved in the fight uh, back in January of last year when uh, Will and me set up camp on the site of the mine and decided to stand against it. Uh, since then, a lot more people have gotten involved in the opposition uh, we've seen a local rancher file a lawsuit against the mine that came uh, in uh, the winter of last year as well. And then soon afterwards, four environmental groups filed a lawsuit against the mine. And uh, myself and Will here got into some conversations with some of the tribes in the area and started learning about the cultural significance of the region. And that's when uh, the Reno Sparks Indian Colony stepped forward and decided to join in the lawsuit as well from a tribal angle. And now uh, the Burns Paiute tribe is involved and the Winnemucca Indian Colony has just recently filed to join the lawsuit as well. All right. So uh, there's expanding interest and people are concerned. And this really is one of those uh, battles of uh, the future. Uh, joining us, as we said, is Will Falk. He's an attorney, a writer. Uh, and you represent the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, um, Will Falk. Tell us uh, uh, what uh, they have asked you to do. Why have they asked you to get involved? Uh, what are their concerns and fears in terms of the damage? Are these sacred grounds? Yeah, these are these are very sacred grounds. Um, in fact, there are there have been two massacres in Thacker Pass. Uh, Paiute oral history um, tells the story of um, a, a time when when uh, sometime in the past Paiute hunters were off in in the next um, range over hunting. Um, and when they came, they came back to their their village that was there in Thacker Pass, and they found um, uh, the people that didn't go hunting with them uh, massacred with their uh, intestines pulled out and strung across the sagebrush, um, and that had such a, a rotten smell. And um, the the Thacker Pass is shaped like a crescent moon um, that they gave the the name to Thacker Pass in Paiute, Pahimaha, which means rotten moon in, in Paiute. Um, so Thacker Pass has long been known as as this sacred massacre site in in Paiute culture. 
Um, but then again, as Max was saying, on, on September 12th, 1865, um, members, federal employees, I want to make that very clear, federal employees uh, massacred between uh, 30 and 70 Paiute men, women, and children uh, in Thacker Pass as part of, of what historians call the Snake War. Um, the Snake War was primarily fought over miners encroaching on Paiute and Shoshone territories. Um, and um, <laughs> here we are in, in 2022 now. Um, the federal government is is trying to destroy the evidence of that massacre site by placing an open pit lithium mine on top of the graves of, of 70 um, massacred Paiute people. Um so the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, um, it's really, it's, 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 it could be kind of interesting for your listeners. Uh, there's, there is no law that gives um, an Indian tribe the power to veto a construction project like this on public lands. So this project is, is completely on, on federal BLM land. Um, and despite the fact that there are uh, over 1,000 cultural resource sites in Thacker Pass where BLM has found artifacts created by the ancestors of my clients, um, where where we do know that, that these, um, as many as 70 Paiutes were massacred and where Paiute oral history um, describes the, another massacre as well as, as the sacredness of the land itself. It's a place that is, is home to very many gold and eagles, which which my clients consider directly connected to the creator. Um, it's a place that people have been going to to gather um, traditional medicines um, for for millennia. It's a place where there's a big obsidian quarry um, where where traditional peoples have have uh, harvested obsidian for again millennia. Um, despite all of this, uh, the only right that that the Reno Sparks Indian Colony has is is to be consulted about this project before BLM goes ahead and and destroys Thacker Pass. And what what we're primarily arguing in this in this case is that um, the Bureau of Land Management didn't consult even by its own definition um, any Indian tribe. Um, about this project, despite there probably being 12 or 15 tribes that consider this area sacred. Um, so we we are trying to force the BLM to reopen its permitting process um, to to actually sit down with the tribes and engage in meaningful consultation about about the sacredness of Thacker Pass, the historic and cultural properties that are there in Thacker Pass. Um, before they they can proceed with this um, with this mine, um, so so that that's primarily what the litigation is is geared towards, and um, we are right in the thick of the fight right now. <laughs> so you say they're they're um, they failed uh, in terms of um, uh, consulting. Um, did they? Uh has there been a how had they if they were required to do that have they lied about it have they lied publicly how have, have they misled the public do they claim that they did consult with the tribes did they consult with a couple of members of the tribe what's the what's the situation there yeah so um 
The um, I think it's the White House uh, Council on um, Economic Development uh, has put together a study that um, says that from the time that they that federal agencies file a notice of intent to prepare what's called an environmental impact statement, um, which is required in these big projects like this, to the time that they actually issue the final permit, what's called the record of decision, on average that takes three and a half years. Um, this project was was the notice of intent was filed, and 11 months later, the um, record of decision was uh, filed. Um, the 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 primary um, public commenting period of this during this project uh, was set to begin in in late March of 2020, and and we all know what happened with the the biggest pandemic the world has seen in a hundred years, um, which which um, specifically harmed uh, the the reservations. I mean, um, um, native reservations were hit dis- disproportionately hard by by COVID-19. Um, well, at, at the time that, um, that that happened, the Advisory Council on Historic Properties, which is a, a federal um, um, agency that, that helps other federal agencies understand how to consult with the public and Indian tribes about uh, cultural resources, suggested to BLM that, um, you know, you should pause all your tribal consultation right now because the tribes are going to have a horrible time um, trying to, to engage in meaningful consultation with you right now. Tribal offices are closed. Most tribal councils are isolating. Um, It's just going to be really hard for them to really explain to you the importance of what's here. Despite that recommendation, um, sorry, did you want to interrupt me? Go on, no, go on, please, go on. Um, um, BLM in, in July of 2020 uh, under the Trump administration decided to fast track uh, the project, uh, which meant um, really expediting the, the public consultation period. So um, originally BLM identified uh, three tribes that they felt like should be uh, consulted about this project, the Summit Lake Paiute tribe, the Fort McDermott Paiute and Shoshone tribe, and the Winnemucca Indian colony. Um, and BLM has been claiming that they have uh, consulted with those tribes, but we have now seen the administrative record and the extent of of this consultation is is um, some letters that BLM sent to tribal offices. And BLM's own definition of consultation says that sending a letter to a tribal council office and receiving no response does not um, is not a sufficient effort to initiate tribal consultation. And all three of these tribes. Um, after the record of decision was issued, when they finally heard about this project, all wrote to BLM and explained that um, we we didn't even know about this project. We were not consulted about this. And BLM should have known that um, even in the best of times, it takes the tribe a little bit longer to consult than than other organizations. Um, and and they, they demanded um, adequate consultation. Uh, of course, BLM is is trying to get this this lithium mine in. Um, lithium Nevada Corporation, um, you know, I think by now has raised well over a billion dollars in capital for this mine, um, and they're cracking the whip and they want they want uh, this mine to get going and and start making their shareholders uh, profits. Um, 
and and from my client's perspective and um um from from the other tribes that are involved um <laughs> they're going to destroy this place without ever actually talking with the tribes well uh there is going to be uh, I, I we have been thinking about this situation this story as uh, uh the next standing rock and the, the battle for these kinds of resources and what the government is going to be willing to do in terms of uh uh commerce uh it, it's crucial um we just have a minute or two left but uh, max wilbert again remind people well, if the government has its way, what will this land look like in 20 or 30 years? Well, first, I want people to imagine how beautiful and special Thacker Pass is right now. This mountain pass uh, covered in sagebrush sitting at about a mile above sea level uh, with incredible dark starry night skies and herds of pronghorn antelope. Uh, uh, birds up on the hillside, golden eagles circling overhead, um, the tracks of sage grouse wandering through the snow in between the sagebrush. And uh, imagine all of that bulldozed. Uh, imagine uh, nearly 18,000 acres destroyed, bulldozed, and, and dug into pits, turned into uh, chemical waste disposal facilities, uh, turned into sulfuric acid processing plants and access roads and fuel storage depots. Uh, this is the reality of, of mining and extractive projects like this, and it's what's coming for Thacker Pass unless we can stop it. And, and, and our love for the land is really what is driving our efforts to protect this place. Well, we're going to stay with it, and we're going to show up there with our equipment, uh, and we're going to report from eye level, because we do see this as an incredible battle, environmental battle, uh, in this 21st century battle to save the environment. I want to thank both of you, Max Wilbert uh, and Will Falk. Please come back. Keep us posted on this battle, and as I say, we're going to bring the Flashpoints team into the field and be with you. Thank you both for joining us today on Flashpoints. That wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akil. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.